It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. What does a future powered by algorithms and big intelligence mean for our lives? Already, we're using artificial intelligence every day. AI-powered programs like Google Search are changing our world. So what's next? Bloomberg Television anchor Eric Schatzker says this powerful new technology means something different for everyone. The consumer's perspective, how cool is this going to be? The at-risk worker's perspective, what's the dark and forbidding future perhaps that AI holds? Today, he and a panel of tech experts explore the dollars and cents point of view. How will AI transform industry and disrupt business? Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from on-stage events held by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. It was held in June 2017 in Aspen, Colorado. Artificial intelligence is already in fields like healthcare and the auto industry. In the future, what sectors will be the most transformed by AI? Maybe education or media? Gary Marcus is a cognitive scientist who built a machine learning company and then sold it to Uber. He envisions a new industry emerging around using AI to help care for the elderly. There's all these in-home video cameras now, and so I think there are opportunities. I don't think that AI is good enough yet, but it might be in five years, to do in-home in monitoring and take care of people that don't have you know, house staff to do it, so you make sure your grandma is okay. As machine learning improves, who's monitoring it? Some say AI is the wild west of technology, and little oversight could bring dire consequences. Bloomberg's Eric Schatzker leads a conversation with AI expert Gary Marcus, founder of O'Reilly Media, Tim O'Reilly, and Michael Chewy, a partner at the McKinsey Global Institute. Schatzker directs his first question to Chewy. O'Reilly answers next, followed by Marcus. Let's begin with this. By cutting through the hype, how real is the promise of AI, and how seriously should one, if you will, a business manager or a business owner or a CEO, if you like, take its power to transform industry and to disrupt business models? And um, we'll start this one with you, Michael. Um, a couple of things. One is, uh, you know, to answer your question directly, how real is the potential? It is absolutely real, and so we've studied, you know, many different potential use cases of these technologies. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll mention one. Um, this idea of predictive maintenance, this idea that, you know, there, right now there are generally two ways that you deal with things that are, that are about to break. Either go check on them every once in a while or wait till they break and then fix it. If you get a lot of data from Internet of Things, et cetera, and you, you do some learning, um, machine learning, then you can you know, potentially fix things before they're about to break. That has huge implications, not only reducing the costs of repairing things, but actually not having things break is incredibly powerful because then, you know, you're, you're a uh, car can continue to run, your assembly line can continue to run. And by the way, if you think about healthcare, think about healthcare as potentially being predictive maintenance for the human machine, right? And then again, if we can you know, treat people before they become sick, that is incredibly powerful not to have to bring them in the hospital. That's just one use case out of hundreds that, that we can talk about. That said, we've surveyed um, uh, you know, several hundred uh, companies in terms of how much they're using these technologies, AI already, and a small percentage are either using them at scale uh, or in a core process. Many of them are starting to experiment. And so what we'd say is the potential is absolutely real, but the captured potential is, is constrained right now um, because it, it takes real time to adopt these technologies. All right, well, let, let me uh, start by saying, uh, first of all, there's a continuum of technologies 
and AI proper, what someone like Gary would call AI, uh, is actually a relatively small subset and a very powerful subset of new capability. Uh, but it's going to be continuous with a lot of stuff we've been doing in this sort of big data area uh, where we've been using statistical inference and so on. Uh, you know, it's kind of what's behind, you know, companies like Google. Where the AI comes in is obviously that you're starting to build models where uh, the insights are developed out of the model rather than by statistical analysis in, in, the, in the old sense. Um, and, and so it allows often for... Um, you know, unexpected insights. But, you know, one of the key things is that, that these technologies allow us to do things at enormous scale and speed. And, you know, and just think about all the things in your life uh, that we now take for granted. You know, at one point we said WTF, and then all of a sudden we go, ah, so what? You know, yeah. You know, millions, hundreds of millions of people are walking around with a little blue dot on their phone that tells them exactly where they are in real time, and they can get directions to anywhere. They can find local restaurants. They can, you know, that's not AI, but it sure is magical. And it, it, you know, and so now you look at when you start adding AI and you start getting more and more predictions based on all that data. So it's going to penetrate every aspect of our lives, and the real question for me, I think, of, of whether it has a good impact or a, a bad impact, is do we, how much do we use it simply to cut costs and do exactly what we were doing before, but more efficiently and with fewer people? That's the fear of self-driving cars. Uh, you know, oh, we'll put all the truckers and the drivers out of work. Or do we say, well, what could we do with this that we couldn't do before? You know, just like we didn't used to be able to build skyscrapers before the industrial technologies of, of structural steel and, and, and great uh, construction machines. Uh, and, and we did something that was previously unimaginable. And that's the thing that's so exciting to me about AI is precisely that the things that are going to be most magical and most powerful are the things that are going to totally blow our minds in the same way that, you know, I don't know, the, channel, the, the, the tunnel under the English Channel would have startled and, and amazed the people who uh, were worried about the Industrial Revolution. I think there's going to be kind of two phases of that. So one has already begun. There are lots of AI applications that we take for granted, like Google Search is actually an AI application. Nowadays, Google Search uses a lot of machine learning, but Google Search was AI from the minute that it was launched. And so AI already has changed our world incredibly. Um, there are all these kinds of optimization problems that Michael was pointing to. There's going to be a whole new set of applications that I don't think people even think about yet when AI can actually read. So as a kind of reality check, we should realize that AI can't read yet, that AI is sort of like animal intelligence now and not human intelligence. So you can't feed in a news story, let's say, or any, any written text to a machine and say, who did what to whom, why and when, what's their motivation? So there's a way in which we have all these like, semi-literate machines. They can read some of the words. They can find two stories that are about roughly the same thing by totaling up the numbers of words, how many times were Trump and Russia mentioned or whatever. But um, they don't actually follow what's going on in the way that a human reader would. Um, this is going to make a really profound impact on the world when they can read science well and we can actually do automatic scientific reasoning. So there, there are some 
problems in science that are too hard for individuals to understand because there's so many biological molecules interacting, tens of thousands of them. It's too hard for one person to understand. When we can get machines to be able to read the scientific literature as well as a person, but do computation as well as people, that's going to really be um, mind-changing in terms of, of or world-changing in terms of what's going to happen for medicine. I think going back to your original question, if I could just add one other thing. I think for people who are like, say, hypothetical CEOs, a real question that they should be trying to wrap their mind around is, what can you do with AI now? What will we be able to do five years from now? What will we be able to do 20 years from now? I often find people from the outside are like, give me AI, but they don't really know <laughs> like, what they want AI to do for them in their company and which problems are tractable and which ones aren't. And I think it's going to be important um, for the most effective companies to get a handle on what's actually solvable now, which is typically these supervised learning problems where we have a lot of training data, and what's not. For example, something where you need to read a lot of text and integrate all of that text together. Yeah, just picking up on the idea of what's possible now, many of the things that we've already seen are just going to get better. You know, so for example, uh, uh, Google Translation and, uh, you know, was done by purely statistical methods, uh, it's now done by deep learning. And it just got better. You know, but it was, it was working before, it was working pretty well, and now it's working very well. And so the question is, once it starts working very well, you know, do we get to the point of the Star Trek communicator? You know? And that's going to be the next uh, interesting you know, phase where we'll just start, you know, and some of that's going to be advances in devices uh, beyond our phones, you know, where we'll, we'll go to another country and we'll just talk in our language and they'll hear it in, uh, in theirs. You know, and I think that's definitely a plausible future. Everyone speaks English in Star Trek, though. <laughs> there, there is that. It's really the Babelfish in Hitchhiker's Guide that I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, Gary, could you pick up on this point that you just made about animal intelligence? Andrew Ng, who is here, co-founder of uh, Coursera, maybe you saw him speak yesterday or I think he spoke the day before as well also the former head of Baidu AI and Google Brain, um, says AI can already automate anything it takes a normal brain one second to do. So if we could use that as the starting point, A, do you buy that premise? And B, if it's animal intelligence today, how long will it take before it's infant intelligence? And or is that even really a conversation we should be so, having? So the answer to the first part of your question is I think it's absurd. I've seen Andrew make this claim over and over again, Harvard Business Review and Wall Street Journal and so forth. But there are lots of things people can do in a second with great reliability that machines still can't do. Like a person can drive anywhere without the benefit of a map, look at what's going on and make a safe decision about whether to drive, to turn, to stop and so forth. Driverless cars need to have a very detailed map. If there's any alteration like a construction sign, they can't do it. And so you know, I would not trust a, a driverless car to replace a human being, even though we actually have a lot of data now, but we don't have the right algorithms to do that. Or I can show you a, a picture of essentially any scene, and you can give me a re reliable description. Deep learning can do that like 80% of the time. 20% of the time, it'll do things like look at a parking sign with stickers on it and say, refrigerator filled with food and drinks. Um, so these are like <laughs> hallucinations, right? If you have a person that hallucinates 20% of the time, you bring them to a doctor. So like, <laughs> I don't think Andrew has actually nailed the reality there. I, I would also add another point uh, and it take issue with the idea of animal intelligence because animals uh, are emotional beings in a way that uh, no artificial intelligence is. Uh, you can express love for someone in a second and <laughs> to guarantee you a, a computer cannot do that. So, <laughs> but an animal could. So I, I agree with what Tim is saying. I would say it's not like a linear scale. So there's a classic 
kind of ascending the chain of being and humans are the ultimate. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't really put it that way. I'd say there's some things animals do really well that machines are still struggling with, like navigating complex terrains. There's some things that machines do that animals can't do, like balancing checkbooks. And so it, it's not a, a linear um, comparison. But if you want to compare with human infants, which is something I do a lot since I have two children and I am a cognitive development researcher, um, I, I compare which, them all Which the of those time. two is more important? The kids, but they're both important. Same thing. Um, don't make me choose, Sophie's choice. No, um, no not, not more important in an absolute sense. <laughs> the kids are more important. but. Um, like, my kids can do things that no machine can do. Like, my, my um, daughter took a chair sort of like this, where there's a seat back and a, and a seat rest and a gap in between. We were sitting at a Whole Foods um, the other day, which had not been turned into an Amazon.com yet. And um, at the end of the meal, she wanted to get out, and so she climbed you know, between the chairs. She'd never seen me do that. She'd never seen the Dukes of Hazard, so she didn't have any you know, evidence from television about how to do this. She just said, well, this is how my body works. This is how the chair works. The gap was smaller than the chairs you're sitting in, so it was a more difficult task. Um, and she's like, I wonder if I can do this cool task, and she figured it out. And, you know, maybe animals could do that. Probably they could, and machines can't really do well, that. Well, they could do it with thousands and thousands of trials. No, no, but <laughs> the, the, the task was defined as doing it on one trial, like being able to, oh, oh, to see, see yeah. there's an opportunity afforded by these circumstances that I've never seen before. What yeah. will I do with that opportunity? That's the thing the machines can't do. Yeah. You could train a machine trial and error with 100,000 trials, no problem. As, as Gary said, too, it's n neither linear nor unidimensional, right? So IQ as you know, one, you know, one measure doesn't make sense, I don't think. Thanks for listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Did you know our podcast airs each week on Sirius XM's Insight Channel? You can listen to the show on channel 121. Find a schedule on SiriusXM's website. Aspen Ideas To Go is also available on NPR One, Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast player. Now back to today's featured talk. Here's Eric Schatzker. I think by now we're all familiar with the fact that there's a lot of breathless excitement around the speed at which some of these technologies are progressing and how much better or not perhaps machines are getting at doing the things that we used to think of as the exclusive domain of human thought. Tim, how fast is this stuff really happening? So let me start by saying that there's a lot of fake news going on in the AI front. <laughs> uh, you know, hey. It took us if, 15 minutes to get to fake news. If you, if you are an AI company right now, you're valued more highly than you know, a non-AI company. So regardless of the degree of AI, companies are slapping the label on. So that's just a caveat. And we've been there before. There was a time when everybody was a Web 2.0 company or an open source company or you know, a big data company. Whatever uh, so, you write about, people yeah. slap on and they're worth well, more. There, so is, some, it's there good. is some of that. Um, but, uh, so, but the reality, how fast is it going? Uh, it's going unevenly fast. We're going to have amazing breakthroughs in some areas and other things that seem obvious just will, will be harder than, than people think. And sometimes the harder thing is not going to be um, actually a technology problem. For example, I, I would bet that the challenge of getting a, a, an autonomous car to drive better than I do is not that hard because I'm a lousy driver. <laughs> but getting an autonomous car to drive well enough 
uh, to remove the insurance risk and the liability risk and the social stigma uh, of, of being able to drive in all circumstances, maybe a lot longer. You know, so the last couple of percent may actually have legal and financial barriers more than technical barriers. Can I amplify on that too? I absolutely agree, right? Those of us who are technologists, we love doing is solving the technical problems and they're fun and, and they're hard and, and they're rewarding to do. Um, but as we try to model out, even you know, some of you have read our research from January, we estimate about 50% of the activities that people do in the economy today could be automated by technologies that have already been developed right, without requiring some sort of breakthrough. So that seems like a huge number. But then if you think about how long it actually takes to, to uh, integrate those technologies, develop them for an individual use case, have a positive business case for deploying them, and then even when there's a positive business case, when we've looked at dozens of technologies, it's taken eight to 28 years between the time that they're commercially available and the time they reach their plateau in adoption. Why? It's because the hard stuff is all the people stuff, changing the way that an organization operates, actually having everyone align that this is the right way we should you know, use this technology. That all takes time, and all that technology diffusion takes real time. So you know, we modeled a whole bunch of different scenarios for how fast this might actually happen. And the midpoint of those scenarios is in 2055. That's 10 presidential terms from now. Now, it could be 20 years earlier, it could be 20 years later. But just you know, the speed of technology, it's amazing and it's fun to talk about, and we'll continue to work on that, I think. Um, but also realizing that a lot of the hard work is not just solving the technical problem, but actually all the business problems and all the organizational problems and all, you know, all of us as individuals being able to adapt to using this technology. That takes real time. Uh, I'd like to pick up, have you, if you don't mind, pick up on this point that you made, Tim, about unevenness. As you've just explained, Michael, you spent a lot of time looking at the practical impact of AI, for lack of a better term, on the corporate world. And of course, there's a consequence to that, how it affects us as individuals, employees, investors, for example. Um, but I'd like to try and come to something of a consensus here among the three of you on which industries, again, thinking that this is going to happen unevenly, which industries or business models are most ripe for or perhaps susceptible to disruption or transformation? What's at the top of your list? So one of the things that we discovered as we were doing this research uh, that we published just a, few, just a few weeks ago is that uh, two things. One is that many of these technologies tend to increase the dispersion between the, the leading edge and everybody else, basically. And we find that both at an individual company level, right? The companies that are doing the best are superstar companies and everyone is below. You know, Brynjolfsson and, and McAfee all ha have also published on this. We find that between sectors as well, uh, that the sectors that have become more digitized, that have um, invested the most in digital technologies as well as invested the most in operating in a digital way are, uh, have much better performance than uh, other uh, industries. And so the, you know, the quick answer is which, you know, which industry will you know, continue to accelerate. It's the digital industries, those ones that were born digital, whether it's you know, online companies. Um, those are ones that were born with the DNA to use data that have already hired lots of uh, machine learning expertise um, and have invested highly in that. And so those, those, you know, that sector will continue to, uh, to accelerate. Everywhere else, it's a, it's a bit of a race. Uh, and so I think we see uh, some sectors that have tremendous potential, but the human and regulatory stuff, you know, healthcare yeah, is I a perfect- I was just about to go yeah. there. I was just about to go, go there. Go ahead. Why There's this yeah. field that 
could be so revolutionized by data and AI, and we have an ossified system that resists change and is going to change very slowly because it's sort of in this quasi-governmental, uh, special regulated market space, you know, and, and even, but even an unregulated market like retail. I mean, Amazon is 22 years old, you know, and, and it's now got up to what, maybe 6% of, of retail. Now they're, they're increasing that. Uh, and, and I think retail, if, when, when I think of what's actually at the top of my list, it actually probably is retail um, because uh, and again, I would also want to point out that it's not technology in isolation. You know, uh, uh, you know, there's a toolkit for these industrial transformations, and AI is just one of the tools. You know, you think about, uh, say, you know, Uber and self-driving cars. Yeah, AI is part of it, but there's also, you know, location awareness and uh, logistics. You know, I mean, think about what what is Uber, the heart of Uber's business is having enough drivers to meet demand and having enough passengers. And most of the money they spend, I mean, they spend a bunch of money on technology. They spend money to build that matching marketplace. They spend a boatload of money recruiting drivers and recruiting passengers. And, you know, and eventually the hope is that this becomes entirely self-sustaining. But in that transformative period, uh, you know, customer acquisition costs are, are, are actually a limiting factor, not technology. <laughs> They lose $2 billion a year. Yeah, exactly. So, so my vote would be that medicine is the industry that's going to be most profoundly changed by AI, but it's also going to be the hardest to change because of yeah. the, all the obstacles in place in, in terms of getting acceptance by doctors and health insurers and having you know, different sets of data that aren't aligned and so forth. But in the long run, I think machines are going to be able to help with diagnosis, with triage, um, and eventually with automated scientific reasoning for figuring out what you know, new treatments we can have. So you, you look at something like depression and there hasn't been a new significant treatment in like 40 years or something like that. Or you look at cancer and I guess there's some immunology stuff, but most of what people do now they were doing in their early 70s. Um, when we get AI systems that can really understand these complex molecular cascades, we're going to have breakthroughs in terms of treating those disorders that's really going to fundamentally change the, um, the nature of human life. What about in the shorter run? Uh, you know, is it... Your industry, hmm? media. Media. I mean, we know, we've seen this already, right? I mean, uh, you know, everybody who's in print, uh, um, that industry is undergoing tremendous, tremendous disruption. It's not only because of AI, um, but again, the ability to... Uh, you know, personalize the content that somebody re receives. By the way, there are all kinds of issues with it that Tim has already made reference to, uh, but also change the, the revenue model um, in order to, to deliver, to the extent to which, you know, some of these media companies are uh, ad served or a significant percentage of, and sometimes most of their revenue comes from ads. Uh, as Tim had mentioned too, the enabling technology for a lot of that um, are AI related. Can I from, bring up okay. one that uh, has not, well, in one sense it has changed and for the worse, but it could change for the better, and that's politics. Uh, it's interesting because we've actually done a, a huge amount, not with AI, but so much as with big data, uh, to micro-target, and, and it's actually led us down a very bad path. Uh, but in fact, if you actually think about what AI could bring to political discussion. You know, it could bring massive amounts of data. It could bring uh, what Ray Dalio calls believability-weighted decision-making, 
You know, like, who has a good track record on this issue? Let's give their opinion more weight so it's not just the shouting classes, uh, you know, who can outshout each other. You know, but or we're, we're not going each there, other. but we could. We could actually build, you know, uh, machines that aided us make good public policy decisions. On, on the we could front, we could in the next 10 years completely change education. Oh, yeah. Um, we, if we put the resources in, we could make much better automatic teaching that was accessible to everybody. So I think we tend to spend money at the local level for schools. If we built sort of Hollywood production value level games um, and put the right research into it, I think we could profoundly change education in the next 10 years without having fundamental advances in AI. I think it's a matter of political will and people getting their mind around putting in projects that have the production values of good documentary movies and stuff like that. But I think it could be done with existing tools. Let me throw one more in there, which I think reflects the, the, the immense scope of the potential of these technologies because we're not converging on one, right? But you know, there's stuff that none of us, very few of us see, which is industrial things, infrastructure stuff, um, you know, and, and increasingly all of these systems are, are, are now being instrumented. And when you have instrumented uh, systems, then they, you, you generate data. If you have data, then you can you know, apply machine learning. Um, and whether it's uh, you know, uh, bridges, uh, locomotives, uh, jet engines, uh, elevators, escalators, all of this stuff will increasingly generate data and be able to run more efficiently, more effectively, reduce energy consumption, reduce uh, emissions as a result mm -hmm. of this technology. And we mostly won't see it. When we study Internet of Things, two-thirds of all the potential impact of that data that can be generated by all these sensors occurs in B2B environments rather than B2C environments. So you know, we'll not see that directly, but the economic potential is in the trillions. It's huge. Yeah, here, here's another one for you, insurance. Uh, when you, the Internet of Things is, is, is sort of part of that story, uh, but AI is as well. Uh, we have had this historical industry that's based on prediction of risk. AI is really good at prediction. And if we are better able to predict risk, uh, the, the entire equation changes for insurance. And it's unclear to me how that's going to play out because it could play out that insurance companies use this technology because they have a much better idea of risk uh, to actually exclude and limit their risk and to increase uh, their take. Or they can also use it potentially to expand uh, you know, coverage and make a better insurance system that could cover more people. And I think that's exactly one of the kinds of choices that, for example, policymakers should really be thinking about. What is the cap if, does the capability just allow this industry to become more extractive or does it allow it actually to serve society better? Here, here's another one that um, doesn't really even exist at a large scale yet, but it's elder care. So um, the, you know, you look at the demographics and there's obviously gonna be more and more need. There's all these in-home video cameras now. And so I think there are opportunities. I don't think the AI is good enough yet, but it might be in five years um, to do in-home in monitoring and take care of people that don't have, you know, have staff to do it, so you make sure your grandma is okay or things like that. Well, but even, even today, you know, an Alexa-style, uh, you know, help button. You know, I mean, you, I think about start. You, you've got this bracelet or this button that you're supposed to carry around and you fall and you've dropped it. And, you know, I, I have a very personal experience where my former mother-in-law had a stroke and was lying, you know, nobody was around, we were traveling, was lying on the floor mm -hmm. for a week. 
uh, you know, and, and a horrible, horrible experience. And, uh, you know, to be able to call out, you know, I mean, you know, have a listening house. Uh, it, it, you know, you don't even need machine vision for that, just because yeah. there's times when you can speak that you can't actually reach this button. So I agree with that. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, that's going to be a whole new industry. Like, there's going to be a different way of thinking about um, elder care that will start with Alexa and we'll move to the camera. So, I mean, some of the industries, we don't even know them yet, right? If we'd had this conversation um, about the internet 20 years ago, we probably wouldn't have, you know, projected Twitter or Facebook and so forth. Uh, you know, there, there are lots of things that probably come up that we don't even think of as, you know, social networking wasn't an industry that was at the top of anybody's lips. And, well, Tim could tell us exactly when, but say in 1992 or something like that. Uh, Michael, you brought up the point about, correctly, of course, about instrumentation and sensors, data collection. Uh, if it's true right now that uh, an algorithm is only as good as the volume and quantity of data that you feed it, uh, there's something of a chicken and egg problem. Gary, you have built one AI company already and sold it to Uber, and you're in the process of building another, as you just told us. How do you strike the balance between the need to invest in data and the need to invest in people, engineers and scientists, to build the necessary algorithms. I mean, my case is kind of unusual, I think, in terms of what it, what it is that I've tried to do in both my companies, which are not to make data plays. I think that as a small startup, and given the set of skills that I have and that some of my friends have, we've been trying to find algorithms that are very horizontal, that can be used in a lot of places, but not necessarily to ourselves personally dominate the, you know, the data business. So I think there are a lot of different models for startups now. One model for startups in the AI space is to find a unique source of data and really leverage that well. Um, our particular talent, the people that I know, is building new algorithms. And so that leads us in a pretty unusual um, place relative to the startup space as a whole. We're not unique in that, but you know, both my companies are over in that part of the space, and it's not, it's not something I would advise everybody try at home. Right? The other thing I would say about, you know, if you are a startup and you're trying to work with AI, many of the problems are going to be design and user interface problems. You know, if you look at uh, Alexa and why it was such a breakthrough, it was basically good design, you, good voice design. It's better than Siri and Google uh, in the way they thought about the interaction. And I asked uh, the, the team there, what was the difference? And they were like, we didn't have a screen. You know, and it just took uh, realizing, how would you do this differently if voice was all you had? and you made a better UI. And I think, you know, Apple taught us that years ago. And I think there's gonna be a lot of cases where somebody will have way better technology, way more data, and somebody will come kick their butt because they thought about how to make it work better for people. Uh, just one other thing, you build on both of those comments, which is, um, uh, in, you, you, <laughs> execution matters. You actually have to do all of these things well. Um, being really clever about where you can find data to train uh, is something that a lot of people are spending a lot of time on, and, and, and those who are doing that well, well will tend to be ahead. Not simply because they concentrated on collecting data, but because they were smart about it. If you don't design well and you have all the data, that doesn't work well either. Uh, if you don't actually uh, use the data in an effective way, um, you know, whether it's designing algorithms or, 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 um, or uh, tuning them, et cetera, there's real technique in that as well. And so just saying that you're a data company or you know, we're, we're, we're terrific at you know, reinforcement learning, et cetera, and, and even then, um, 
they're, you know, we're so excited about what all these deep learning techniques can do with, you know, large amounts of data, but, you know, there, there are problems when you can't get that much data. And so now there's some, you know, we're working on an article about what some of the, some of the cutting edge research are that, can, you know, for example, you know, Gary was talking about, um, you know, his child doing basically one-shot learning in a sense, right? Being not, not having a huge amount of data and being able to do something uh, immediately. And so I think there's, a, there's always uh, a next phase that you have to do, but in order to build a business, you've got to execute against all, all of those things. Um, so it's, it's, it's hard. Yeah. If I, can I just jump in on yeah. part of what Michael said? Um, there's a paradigm right now that everybody is using in machine learning and AI generally, which is supervised learning. So I have some inputs, I have some labeled outputs, and there are a lot of problems that can be solved that way, and you know, it's an interesting time to do that. But one shouldn't forget the larger picture, which is there are many problems that don't fit into that paradigm at all. Um, some of the clever work is going to come from people saying, this isn't actually a supervised learning problem. How can I solve this other problem? So maybe this is a problem about intuitive physics or common sense reasoning. So you know, if you're trying to get a domestic robot to actually work and be in your home and pick up, you know, pick up your grandfather um, and not drop him on the floor, you need to solve a whole different set of problems that may have nothing to do with supervised learning. Right? You can't try that out 10,000 times. In well, you also, in that way, to, 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 to give you a, uh, also a related point, you also need advances probably in soft robots and pneumatics sure, uh, sure. and uh, power supplies. And, and one of the reasons why technology takes a long time is that it's a complex of solutions. I mean, just look at something like, uh, you know, I, I, keep, I keep coming back to Uber because it's such an interesting example. Uh, we had uh, the idea that taxi cabs could be connected. And what did we do? We, the first companies put a screen in the back and shoot, showed news and ads and they put a credit card reader in there. They basically just reproduced the old model. And then along comes uh, you know, Travis Kalanick and Garrett Camp, and they basically go, wow, we should be able to summon this. But they only do it for black cars. This is this toy for rich people. And then uh, you know, uh, Logan Green and John Zimmer over at Lyft go, wait, wait, we can have ordinary people use their own cars. Right? They're the ones who did that. And then Uber leapfrogged that and put all that together. So there were all these capabilities lying around. And it was like one uh, entrepreneur sees something about it. Another entrepreneur sees something else. And they start putting more and more of the pieces together. And then all of a sudden, it works in a way that, that is, is magical. You know, and the first uh, version didn't work at all. It's Aspen Ideas to go. Thanks for listening. One of today's featured speakers, Tim O'Reilly, is in another one of our episodes. He speaks with New York Times columnist Charles Duhigg about his book, WTF, What's the Future and Why It's Up to Us. Technology has traditionally allowed us to do more. So why are we buying this idea that technology will just get rid of jobs? Why aren't we saying, what will it let us do that is currently impossible? O'Reilly's book tackles questions around AI, such as how we must exercise human control over our creations. Find the episode by searching Aspen Ideas To Go in your favorite podcast player. You can also find a link in our show notes. Here's the rest of today's conversation. Eric Schatzker. So, it seems sensible to me based on how you describe it, Gary, that you're building these horizontal algorithms that aren't particularly data reliant. But there are lots of challenges companies are going to face that are data dependent. And so where do um, you know, these AI 
titans fit into the equation and how should others be thinking about them? The Baidus, the Facebooks, the Amazons, the Googles, perhaps the Ubers, perhaps the Apples, the Microsofts, the IBMs. To what degree do they dictate or control the future of AI? I think and, and or should we look about it differently, right? Should it be, should AI be open source? Well, so I, mean, I think you know that I, there's two parts of the question, but I think yes. you know that um, I've recently uh, started proposing that we have something like CERN for AI. I think I'll have a New York Times op-ed about this in a week or two or something like that. Um, the, the premise is maybe we don't want the small number of titans to own all of AI. Um, then we sort of all pay a tax to use, use all the AI if all the, the IP is owned um, by a small number of places. And so, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about inequality um, in sessions here, like at Eric's session a, a few minutes ago. Um, that's surely going to increase inequality by orders of magnitude unless something is, is done about it. So, um, and then there's a set of problems like machine reading that I think even the corporate titans mostly aren't working on because there's a lot of low-hanging fruit to be um, tackled with the big data sets and deep learning and so forth. And so even there, I don't see people working on getting machines to be able to read in the sense of like really being able to comprehend and say who did what, where, when, why. And so the proposal that, that I'm going to make is that maybe we should build something like CERN, which has 20,000 or something like that, scientists from 20 countries working together you know, for things like the Large Hadron Collider that are completely open. Um, a multilateral nonprofit research effort. Exactly, a multilateral nonprofit research effort that could be guided, for example, around machine reading for um, reading unstructured medical information, for example. It would be a huge advance um, for medicine if we could actually get off the ground. So I think there are a lot of problems to making something like that actually work, all the kind of global collaboration and politics and so forth. But if it really worked, I think it, it would be world-changing. Yeah, I, I agree with Gary, but let me bring another perspective on the, the big companies and platforms. Companies can build platforms that are leveraged by uh, developers and, and create a rich ecosystem of innovation. I mean, just look at originally the PC, uh, look at the way the internet did that, uh, the World Wide Web, uh, Amazon with its uh, cloud computing platform, uh, startups built on top of that. And I think there, we're in the phase where uh, AI is being opened up, you know, whether as open source, uh, some of the you know, toolkits, or also as various kinds of web services, APIs from these players. And there really is a question of, do those big players, first of all, they're competing with each other, so that's a good thing, because they, they have to attract developers, uh, because developers help make a platform. Uh, and the question is, how long will they be in the phase of let's grow the market, let's support a developer community, and when will they, as we've seen happen again and again in the past, start trading against their developers and going, well, actually, we need to have that niche. That looks really like a really lucrative application. We'll do that. You know, we all probably, uh, many of us here are old enough to remember when you know, there were all these PC applications and Microsoft knocked them off one by one and because they had uh, advantage on the platform. You know, Google used to link out to everybody else. They started putting more and more of the, of the services and the data into their platform. And you know, Amazon, you know, sort of sucking in more and more of, of what its third-party resellers do into their own products. So the, the real, to me, there's a really interesting governance question around platforms, which is, which I think is one of the big questions for the future. You know, we think, for example, in, in antitrust law of companies competing with each other, but we don't think enough about these global scale platforms competing with their ecosystem and how important it's going to be to regulate that. It was suggested on a panel yesterday here that AI needs a regulator, mm -hmm. an Surely. FDA for AI. Surely. 
It does. Yeah, I mean, right now it's kind of the Wild West. Anybody can build any code they want, and they can put it up. There's almost no regulation at all. Um, lots of that code may be vulnerable, for example, to hacking. So like anybody can put up a driverless car um, algorithm. Do you really want to have driverless cars not be regulated in terms of at least the, their back-end security, in terms of whether we know that people won't hack into them? I mean, there, there's very little regulation right now. I, I think absolutely we need um, to have regulation on that. I'd push a little bit on that because I think uh, there is there are regulators for automobiles and there are regulators in the medical field and to a certain extent you know quote ai is regulated right. yeah there are indirect uh, i mean I'll, I'll, i take your, your point there yes, there's there some indirect controls on things but like for the driverless car situation we don't really know i mean anybody yeah. can get a permit in california some people neglected to but um in principle anybody can get a permit to do a driverless car in california there's not they have to report like how many interventions there were but they can put a lot of well, things on the road that are potentially risky. Yeah, well, let me throw out something here. It's super important. Um, if we want to have regulation, we have to have regulators who are competent. And, and that's part Absolutely of a much agree. broader, uh, I think, appeal, uh, which I, I think is super important for people to have respect for government again. We have to understand that it's a key player in you know, our economy, in our markets, and we need to attract people into government who are actually competent with special skills. And so I, I think that there's a new call for public service. And, and, and this has happened, you know, we, we had people come from the tech industry, uh, you know, into government for, uh, you know, new agents, uh, not agencies, new, new groups uh, in the White House in the, in the waning years of the Obama administration. This is actually continuing, although it's, it's difficult in, in the current political environment for people to go, oh yeah, I want to go to Washington. But we need the, our best and brightest, not just going to Silicon Valley, but we need them uh, going uh, into, into regulation. I have a follow-up on regulation and then a quick other question before we get to the Q&A. Um, where does the regulation apply? If, if we need a regulator, and I don't see consensus on that point, is it in data collection? Is it in the design of the algorithm? Or is it in the application of the I, algorithm? I think ultimately we probably need all of these things. I, I don't think we're in a position to simply write the regulation now. Um, but I would agree with, with something that, that, that Tim was implying. Um, we need regulators who are trained in AI techniques. Um, we, we need people who have coded before, who have built machine learning systems, who really understand these things at the kind of intuitive level that you get once you've tried to build one of these things and debug it. Right? I mean, it's one thing to kind of read about it in the newspaper, another thing to try and actually build it and you see how hard it is to make it work reliably. I think one of the key issues going forward is about the robustness of AI. So most AI kind of works most of the time as long as the circumstances haven't changed that much. I gave this example yesterday they borrowed from Peter Norvig about you take a machine learning thing and it works on Tuesdays and Thursdays, but you don't have any proof that it'll work and then it turns out on the holidays it doesn't really work anymore because the assumptions of your data, which aren't even explicit, haven't been met. And unless you've actually built this stuff, you don't really get that. Heather, who's sitting in, in the back, um, made this wonderful t-shirt design for me um, based on one of these spoofing stimuli. Um, so you can, you can trick deep learning, basically. So there's a starfish, um, or there's a pattern of wavy lines that looks like a starfish. And so the design was, don't worry, uh, killer robot, I'm really a starfish. Right? If you have a system that can be fooled into thinking that a bunch of wavy lines is a starfish, you have a problem. And until you've like worked with this stuff, you don't realize how ubiquitous that problem is. And if you don't realize how ubiquitous it is, you can't write the laws to do it. 
there are lots of machine learning fun things, right? Uh, uh, being able to distinguish chocolate chip cookies from Labradors. I mean, there are all these things that are hard. But coming back to more seriously, um, I, I do think that I, I absolutely agree. If you're going to regulate it, you have to have competent, knowledgeable regulators in order to do that. Um, I think the other interesting point, uh, Dana Boyd has made it too, about the use of data. I, I think it's actually very difficult, and in many cases counterproductive, to try to control um, data because it, 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 it will be generated, it will tend to move around. Rather, I think uh, regulating the use is something that she said, which is quite powerful. Because then you understand, in most cases, the thing that one will object to is a use that's dangerous or conflicts with our values, et cetera, rather than the fact that data exists at all. I totally agree with that. We, we have to regulate the outcomes. What did people do with it? Did they, did they use it against us? Did they use it for us? And often, the very same data could be used for our benefit, in which case we'll go, oh my god, that was amazing. Or by, the, by a different party, they could use the very same data against us, and we'd say, wow, they really screwed us with that. Uh, how about we what open it up do? to questions yeah. from the floor? Uh, I see a number of hands, so let's, that one went up first, the gentleman right there. I'm just wondering what's going to happen when you have driverless cars and someone steps out on the street and it kills somebody. Who's responsible? I mean, the, the legal issues are, I mean, there's a whole set of issues. So one is legal issues in terms of, like, liability, insurance. Is, is it the programmer? Is it the person who owned the car? And, I mean, people are trying to debate these. There's an interesting side that maybe the people that dominate the driverless car stuff initially will be people that can insure themselves. Um, so th there's that whole set of issues, and there's a whole set of issues about explanation. So the driverless car hits the pedestrian. Why exactly did it do that? If you use a deep learning system, the answer you get back is, is vector number 13 had a 17 in the, where it should have had a 16.2. And it, it becomes hard for um, people to even understand what that answer is. And so there's a whole um, debate we had yesterday ab about interpretability. So there's a lot of different issues there that I think are completely unresolved. I can bring up another slightly related point. Uh, the liability, this is to me is the single biggest obstacle, I think, on the liability issue for, for uh, self-driving cars. The liability is likely to be greater than the liability for a similar accident uh, in the case of a human because of a hysterical response. It's you know, speaking, in, in other speaking, words, you know, like, okay, it's a well-known problem what a jury will award uh, to, to, to uh, you know, somebody who, who was in a normal accident with, with two humans. Uh, but as soon as a, a machine is doing that and it goes to a jury, you know, the damages are potentially incalculable, not because there's a different harm, uh, but because of how people feel about it. And speaking of hysterical response, one of my biggest fears is that the driverless car industry will get shut down because of some terrible accident where some company did something that was um, you know, negligent and a small child was killed and so forth. And it'll be a really bad incident and Congress will say, we can't have this anymore. In the long run, that's the wrong response, because in the long run, driverless cars really will be better than people, and it will save, in the United States alone, tens of thousands of lives. So uh, in almost every panel that people have been talking about AI, we've talked about learning or the need for lifelong learning, uh, but there aren't any panels about that. It'd be really interesting to think about a deep dive next year into, into learning and what we're going to do about that, the sort of lifelong learning thing. Um, can I just explain, or can you explain what that means to, to the audience? Yeah, so I mean, I think there's this idea of sort of um, we built an education system. Tim illustrated it really nicely. 
um, that was sort of K through 12, maybe you get a degree, you learned your, your stuff, and then you're pumped out to do that same thing for 40 years in your, in your career. Uh, and it was perfect for the Industrial Revolution, not necessarily perfect for today. This was in a different panel. I in a different just, panel. You didn't yeah. miss it. You didn't today. miss it. But, but Check the web. Every, everybody seems to be flagging this. Um, you know, our group, you know, we have maybe a few hundred million students building things, you know, in, Instructables, Tinkercad, things like that. So we see an awful lot of kids up to 80 years old learning how to make things. Uh, and we've started building basically a badge chain system that's sort of a what if for your own future by doing generative learning. So sort of taking taking basically machine learning to accelerate mastery. And in early, early tests with maker labs, watching somebody build an Instructable, having an algorithm actually help them, using Internet of Things sensors, we saw 47% reduction in expert interventions. Somebody coming in to stop you from hurting yourself, but also helping you actually build something. So there's all this opportunity to take AI and some other ways of learning and, and the new things we know about learning and how brains work and actually apply it to basically help people be super superpowers, help them unlearn things faster, help them build mastery faster, help them do what if for their career using machine learning. Yeah, and, and the so, thing that's so important about uh, AI and education seems to me, uh, the, 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 the fear is that we will simply use it to say, oh, we don't need teachers anymore. When in fact, it, you know, it should be providing superpowers for oh. teachers. And, and you think about how do you actually, you know, I remember once uh, going to uh, the computer science class uh, at uh, Cambridge University. And basically, everybody's working on their problems, and the professor's walking around, looking over their shoulder, uh, you know, interacting with them, giving them feedback. You know, you still had a teacher. Uh, and, uh, and in fact, you know, you ideally want a teacher in a, in a small group. And, and there's various groups that are trying to do this even in the context of, of making kind of stuff. You, you I do want to just make one point about the teacher thing. Um, I mean, we celebrate teachers. Um, my mom, my sister, others have been teachers. I think great teachers, when you amplify them, it turns out to be pretty stunning how they can affect people. Yeah. And that's the interesting question, is how can we give the best teachers and actually kind of have everybody be a little bit of a teacher? Because as you mentor someone, you actually embody your own skills better, too. Yeah. So, so we just don't put a lot of value in teaching today. But if part of your whole life is always teaching, you know, is always mentoring, and build a new instructable, build a new thing to actually explain what you're doing, embodies your learning. Um, Georgia Tech did a very interesting experiment about AI for a teaching assistant. And, and the person who did the initiative, the teachers said, they basically were able to handle tens of thousands of students and actually be a lot more focused on the student. Because the AI was getting rid of all the FAQ stuff and all the stuff all the time. Uh, another question. I just wanted to clarify something Michael had said. You were sort of talking about automobiles and he made the comment, um, with the date 1255. That was the, the 2055. Point of the I'm 2055. sorry, 2055. So was that in relationship of your feeling that if there were driverless cars, it would take us that long too? That was what I was unclear, what that date was. That was for 50% of all the work activities we pay people to do today. But I mean, I think the same reasoning applies. So first of all, there are driverless cars already driving on the roads. The question is, you know, when would you get 50% of them? That, that could take a longer time period. But I think we just need to take seriously uh, the time periods that are involved uh, in bringing some of these technologies to market and having them adopted. Literally, they are out there. They're not that great in the rain. They're not that great in the snow. Uh, but in a, you know, a, a, a predictable roadway, it's pretty good. Uh, but people have died already uh, with those systems. But we're killing a million people a year around the world in car accidents, mostly through driver error. 
So I think thinking that through is all of those issues is really important. Yeah. Next question, right? Hi. We have a really poignant example of the organizational barriers to getting to using AI, and CERN concept may be the solution. So I'd like to address that. The poignant example is you've got two great organizations, MD Anderson and IBM Watson, who partnered, and it turned out to be a financial and PR disaster for them. How would a collaborative or consortium like CERN have helped that? Well, I mean, I think, let me see if I can say this carefully without <laughs> incurring litigation. Um, the, the strength of Watson is at information retrieval. So it turns out that the reason that Watson won Jeopardy is because 99%, and they're candid about this if you read their technical papers, 99% of the Jeopardy questions, the title, uh, I mean, the answer is the title of a Wikipedia page. And so that narrows your search space. You don't have to infer very much. You can mostly look it up with some clever tools for looking things up. To do medicine well, you often have to, I don't know how often, but you often have to infer things that are not written on any page anywhere. And Watson doesn't have the capability to do that. Um, Watson can't, in fact, read. It has a pretty good parser um, as far as these things go, but it has weak semantics in terms of representing what text actually means. If, if I were running this hypothetical CERN, I would really be focusing on how to get machines to read. I think that until you do that, you're limited in what you can do with medicine. So there are lots of interesting problems that you can do without actually being able to read by doing statistical correlation, and that's what the AI field is right now. But there are some problems, and medicine is a good example, where you really want to be able to read text in order to do it well and not just do correlation. So I would be focusing the CERN on exactly that problem, hoping that we can build a new generation of tools. I wouldn't promise you know, two-year delivery. This is a hard problem. But in the long run, that's how you're going to make progress on cancer, is if you have machines that can understand the scientific literature. We have time for one or two more questions, perhaps. There's one in the front row here. You haven't talked very much about what I'll call the effective or emotional side of AI. Now, we've had sessions about cuddly robots and how old people with Alzheimer's feel better interacting with them. So my question is, how do we approach the challenge of co-developing with AI so both of us, humans and our creations, become more empathetic, more ethical, and more wise? I think one important thing that the field hasn't addressed that much yet, although the people are starting to poke at it around the edges, is you actually need the machines to have models of people. Now, some of this is hard to do without a good language model, but we have intuitive psychology. We understand what people's beliefs are, their desires, the goals that they're acting on, and so forth. Um, the real difference between the machine and her, the, the, the abstract computer and her, and reality is the degree of what I would call theory of mind, or people in my field call theory of mind, um, that that character has, is that character understands why people are doing things and, and when. In principle, I think a lot of this can be programmed, yeah. um, especially if you have good natural language understanding. It hasn't been a focus well, so much. There's also kind of a really interesting point, which is we are building giant AI systems that we are part of. You know, when you think about Facebook, for example, we are part of Facebook, and the algorithms are part of Facebook, and we're working together. What they show us changes what we think and what we feel. And it was interesting because in this regard, you know, Facebook manipulates us all the time to increase their ad dollars. But when they actually ran an experiment to see if what they showed people made them happier, they were pilloried for a breach of research ethics. I go, why is it OK to experiment on people to make money, but not to experiment that whether you can make people happier? Just one. And, and that, to me, says something profoundly uh, important about where we're going wrong 
with AI. Because can I use this opportunity to ask a related question uh, and to conclude? Tim's new book, uh, WTF, yeah. you described him when we were talking yeah. uh, before the panel as part economic polemic. Yeah. I think an important question to be asked in the context of this discussion is what ideas does each of you have to prevent, if you will, the spoils from the benefits of AI accruing to a small number of people or a small group of companies to prevent a winner-take-all scenario. It's come up in a number of discussions. I think it's important, again, given where we started this conversation, to finish it off this way. I think there are only two options. Either you do something like CERN for AI, so the public actually owns some of the AI because it helps to build it. Or public IP, if you will. Public IP, or you have massive taxes on those who have vastly more money than everyone else. I don't really see a third option, but maybe my colleagues will. I think, I think there are probably a set of policies uh, that could encourage platform owners uh, to build robust ecosystems. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, we kind of just accept that our current tax system is, uh, you know, it's handed down on the tablets. You know, Moses went up on, you know, mount, or, you know a mountain and, and came back with them. But you could imagine a completely different tax system that encouraged employing people, that encouraged, uh, you know, robust. Change the incentives in other yeah, ways. Yeah, we, we, we yeah. just need to think through different incentives. Uh, uh, first of all, I think... Um, there's been a lot of thought about how to improve social justice, et cetera, and there are a lot of systems that are in place for which we can continue to tune the knobs, uh, mm -hmm. whether it's tax policy, um, uh, social assistance, making benefits portable, a lot, of, a lot of things that fit in that category. But the two, two ideas that I'd, I'd, I'd raise, one is we need to keep people working. And so you know, these technologies will displace people from their jobs. Um, by the way, if people are, are you know, seduced by the universal basic income idea, you know, make sure you're, you're solving the right problem. Because if you assume that every, there's going to be mass unemployment, uh, that's actually a horrible outcome because we won't have enough economic growth. We need all the robots working plus all the people working. And so then the question is, how do we make sure that we keep everybody working um, and that they get paid enough? We're doing some research right now with, which suggests there's probably going to be enough work, right? Yeah. Taking care of old people, uh, you know, infrastructure, developing the technology, um, increased uh, prosperity around the world, um, uh, adjusting our, our energy mix, et cetera. They're Tearing down a lot of things yeah. we did wrong in the 20th century and rebuilding them in the 21st, uh, dealing with climate change, uh, yeah. Probably enough work, right? As yeah. Tim has said, right, what's the work that needs doing? And it seems there's a lot of work need do that needs doing even if a bunch of that work gets automated. Then make sure that people get paid enough. I, I was worried as we started the research that in fact these would all be low paid jobs. We're finding that a, a number of them, a large amount of them are actually in some cases higher paid than the, their jobs that will be displaced. Which then asks, to the question about lifelong learning, how can we help people transition to it? And I think that's Actually, so um, you know, number one is make sure people are working, and how do we transition to them? Then the other part is if it, you know, this this uh, you know decoupling that a number of people have have uh, have documented between productivity and incomes. Um, you know, if, if an increasing amount of returns go to uh, to capital, um, you know, Laura Tyson made this in a in a in a, uh, um, a roundtable that we participated in. Uh, if then, how can we have more people own? Uh, the means of production. And we see people who are you know, you know, running platform companies that are saying, 
I want to distribute ownership of the platform so that, in fact, more people can, can, uh, can achieve the benefits of having a platform. Yeah, and I think, that, for example, there are dynamics. Think about self-driving trucks. Are they owned by independent truckers? Because then it becomes a tool that they use to, to improve their income. If instead it's owned by the platform, uh, then you just got rid of the people. And, and, and so the really interesting questions there about, I think, ownership and ownership of the means of production, I think, is a really interesting question. Michael Choi, Tim O'Reilly, Gary Marcus, I want to thank you. I want to ask everybody to join me in thanking them. Eric Schatzker is an anchor and editor at Bloomberg Television. Tim O'Reilly publishes books and creates conferences around technology. He says he advocates for every major new technology coming out of Silicon Valley. Gary Marcus says he learned to program on a paper computer when he was eight years old. He's a professor of psychology and neuroscience at NYU. Michael Chewy works in McKinsey & Company's research arm called McKinsey Global Institute. He looks at the impact of long-term technology trends for business and the economy. Their conversation was held at the Aspen Ideas Festival in June of 2017. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership in the exchange of ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. Our theme music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.